the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Balance of Nature's fruit and veggie capsules contain 100% fine-ripened fruits and vegetables, tested pure with no pesticides, fillers, or additives of any kind, and are the most effective whole food supplements on the market today. You might ask, how can over 10 servings of 31 different fruits and vegetables fit into six vegetarian capsules? Fruits and vegetables are on an average 85% water. Balance of Nature uses cold vacuum technology to remove the water, leaving only the whole food. We don't use any heat, air, or light drying methods that damage nutrients. Our cold vacuum technology maintains 99% of the fresh fruits and vegetables' original nutritional value. Along with diet and exercise, Mother Nature provides fruits and vegetables to help us maintain good health. To order, go to balanceofnature.com or call 1-800-246-8751. That's 1-800-246-8751. Use the special promo code PODCAST. I grew up in a household where everybody went to public school. I didn't even know what homeschooling was. I didn't know that was a thing until after I graduated from school. Uh, But I was exposed to the educational system from behind the scenes, so to speak, because I saw my mother teaching. In a culture as politically polarized and aggressively tribalized as ours, how do people change their minds? I'm Georgie Borman, a mother, author, and cultural commentator born and raised on the West Coast. I want to know what we can learn from people who've been on both sides of contentious issues, whether they end up on the right or the left. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the 180 Cast. When our kids are 17 or 18 years old, they're going to leave home. But knowing that until then, I'm spending so much more time with them. Hi, and welcome back to the 180 Cast. I'm your host, Georgie Borman. This is the podcast where we explore the brains of people who have radically changed their opinions. So if you want to get a look under the hood, so to speak, and see what convinces people to change even deeply held beliefs, just tuck that phone in your pocket or cup holder and stay tuned. A fun fact about me, if you don't know, uh, I was homeschooled. If you've listened to other episodes or read my commentary, you might be going, oh, it all makes sense now. Yes, I was the teenager that all my public school friends sometimes found insufferably nerdy. <laughs> I don't really blame them. No uh, no 16-year-old in their right mind carries around a pocket constitution. I mean, come on, that's, that's, that's ridiculous. But I love being homeschooled, and I don't regret it. Um, like a lot of other young parents, you know, my husband and I have had a lot of conversations about how we're going to educate our kids, uh, the oldest of which is almost three. So we are thinking ahead just a couple years. We haven't ruled out sending them to school, but homeschooling is is definitely on the table, just depending on a variety of factors. Um, with me today to explain why he ultimately chose to homeschool his kids is Joshua Steimley. He is a self-taught entrepreneur who has contributed to Forbes and Entrepreneur Magazines. I don't know if Josh falls 100% within the 180 definition we usually apply to the podcast, but given that both of his parents taught in the public education system and that he's worked sort of as a sort of de facto teacher's assistant, and then he decided, after knowing all of that, that he was going to homeschool his kids, I thought, this is somebody that we definitely need to have on the podcast, because having people who are intimately familiar with both sides of the debate or the divide is really important, and I think that's what makes this podcast particularly interesting and constructive. So, you know, you should subscribe. If, if you like that sort of thing. So thank you, Joshua, for joining me on the podcast today. I really look forward to um, hearing your reasons behind your, your educational apostasy. Thank you, Georgie, for having me on. Okay, so 
presumably you attended public school and both your parents were teachers. Can you take me back to sort of your mindset about the public school system as a young person? Yeah, and that's correct. I attended K through 12 education in Arcadia, California, and my mother started teaching when I was in about sixth grade. So I didn't grow up with her as a teacher, but, and my father had already quit teaching. He tried it, didn't like it, went back to school, became a rocket scientist instead. And then my mother started substituting when I was about 10 years old or so, and then she started doing it full-time, and she ended up teaching for about 15 years there in the public school system. So I grew up in a household where everybody went to public school. I didn't even know what homeschooling was. I didn't know that was a thing until after I graduated from school. Uh, But I was exposed to the educational system from behind the scenes, so to speak, because I saw my mother teaching. I was her teacher's assistant, so to speak. I would go there after school and help her out. That's how I earned extra money and how I paid off a car accident, amongst other things. So I got to spend a lot of time in the classroom and see what it was like to be a teacher and see the work my mom brought home and see how it kind of worked. So how did you come to develop a more critical perspective of the public school system? When did you, what led you ultimately to decide that you were not just not going to school, put your kids in the public school system, um, but actively advocate for homeschooling? Well, it's not that I hated school. I mean, I wasn't a huge fan of school growing up, but there were times when I loved it. I mean, I had classes that I absolutely loved. I had teachers that I absolutely loved. I had teachers that changed my life, like a lot of people out there. And so it wasn't a anti-public school type of thing. It was part of it was I saw what it took to teach a class because I saw what my mother was doing in terms of preparation and how she taught. And I realized a lot of what she was doing was babysitting. A lot of it was because she'd come home and she'd tell me these stories about the crazy stuff that the kids were doing in the class. And I realized it's these kids who are misbehaving, who are eating up all of her time and she's focused on them. Meanwhile, The kids who actually behave, they're the ones that she says, oh, thank you. Just keep on studying. Keep doing your work because I'm too busy. I've got to focus on these kids who are misbehaving. Not that it's that way 100% of the time, but I could tell that a lot of attention went to the quote-unquote problem kids, of which I was probably one in school too, (laughs) and that that was kind of the real time investment was handling issues, handling problems rather than straightforward education. And I looked at that and I thought, okay, you could take 30 kids and you divide the teacher's time by those 30 kids. And then you start waiting more of the time towards the problem kids. And when I started doing the math, I realized the kids who are not problem kids are getting maybe a few minutes of attention a day from that teacher, a few minutes. I mean like three or four minutes a day. That's it. That's the one-on-one attention that they get. Whereas if you're homeschooling, your kids are getting hours of attention. I mean, we're talking off-the-chart percentage increase of time for kids who are homeschooled at home. So when I met my wife and we got married and we started talking about our kids and what, how we were going to educate them, I was going to my wife and saying, hey, I'd love to homeschool. And I knew that this would put a lot of weight on her because our plan was I was going to work and provide, and she wanted to be a mom. She did not want to work outside the home. And so I knew this was going to be a heavy responsibility on her. And I was saying, I really am in favor of homeschooling our kids because I feel like they're going to get so much more attention that way and so much more real education that way. And that was kind of what started it. So how did you get that initial exposure to the idea of homeschooling? Do you remember how that came about, how you started investigating that as an option? I think I just kind of heard about it, you know, on the street type of thing, where you just hear people talk about homeschooling and you realize, well, homeschooling must be schooling at home. Okay, I got that. That's pretty easy (laughs) to understand. But I didn't know anything about the details, really, until we dove into it. And we actually did a few 180s here because before we had kids, we talked about homeschooling. And then we had kids, and of course, when they're two, three years old, you are homeschooling unless you put them in a preschool that young. So we're already teaching them how to read and how to do basic things. So then what happened was we moved to Hong Kong, 
And when we moved to Hong Kong, that changed everything for us because of the language. We moved there and I thought, oh, that would be so fantastic if our kids could learn Chinese or Cantonese in Hong Kong and pick up a little Mandarin. That would be valuable for them for the rest of their lives. And so because of the language factor, we chose to put our daughter who was turning five at the time, right when we moved to Hong Kong, we chose to put her into a local kindergarten there. And I grew up in Arcadia, California. I, As I was growing up, we had a lot of kids from Taiwan and China moving into my city, and their parents just threw them into an English-speaking school, and they just had to deal with it. So I thought, well, I'm going to do the same thing with my kid in reverse. I'm going to throw her into a Chinese school, and she'll deal with it, and she'll pick it up, just like my Chinese friends picked it up when they came to the United States. Well, we put our daughter into the school and we purposely found a school that we felt like was very flexible and into the arts and they subscribed to a Montessori approach and we thought, okay, this will be great. It's not going to be one of, the, one of these intense memorization, rote memorization type places. We didn't want a factory environment for our child. And even though we put her into this very small, more gentle Asian school, it was still super intense, and she developed stomach issues. She was having stomach pains. We didn't know why for a while. It took us a while to figure out. It was the stress of going to school, and then my wife was going to the school and helping out, and she was seeing how they kind of crushed creativity, and they really crushed the child's love of learning, and so she was there about 80% of the year, and then a few months before the end of the year, we said, this isn't worth it. She's having stomach issues. She's not enjoying education anymore, whereas she was loving it when we were teaching her at home. And we just felt like this just isn't worth it. It's not worth learning the language to put her through what she's going through. She's going to come out of this hating learning, hating knowing new things. And so we chose to take her out, and that was it. For us, that was, okay, we tried it. It didn't work. And we're going full-on homeschooling, and that's when we really dove into it and started looking at conferences and reading about it and buying curriculums and really got into it heavy. In terms of what you said about um, crushing creativity and and suppressing the love of learning, do you have any specific examples of of the way that came about in that school? Yes, there was one thing in particular. My wife went to school that school one day, and they were doing a craft project where they were decorating, they were creating a craft Christmas tree, like on a piece of paper. So cutting out paper, put the tree on the paper, crush up little pieces of paper to make ornaments, glue it on the Christmas tree and make these ornaments. And she was watching a boy do this, and this boy was putting all sorts of different colors on his tree and everything and making it just the way that he wanted it. And a teacher came over and scattered all his stuff that he had done, like ruined his work and said, no, only pink ornaments or something like that. And my wife said she just, she came home and she told me the story about this boy looking at the teacher and you you could just see him like, I was having fun being creative and I got in trouble for being creative because, no, only pink ornaments. And she came home. I I almost yanked our daughter out of school that day. I just thought, if that's the kind of stuff that's going on there, I don't want anything to do with this. Like, that's just crazy to me. And yet that's kind of what I've seen in traditional schooling all along is that you have to stick with the program. You have to stay on the conveyor belt. You have to do things their way. And that's kind of an extreme example. But you can't educate 30 kids with one adult unless you have systems and processes in place. And if people go outside of those systems and processes, then it causes problems. It's a logistical nightmare, so you have to keep the kids in that. And that's not what I wanted for my kids. And so that was one of the experiences where I thought, "Uh, I've had enough. This is it. We're not doing this anymore. Do you think if you had been in America and and put your kid in in one of the just conventional um, kindergartens here in the States, um, if you if you would have done the same thing, um, you know, like had if you hadn't had such a radical experience with, you know, the squashing of creativity, which is, yeah, is very sad to see. Even I see it, you know, with my little two-and-a-half-year-old and she's flipping through a book and she accidentally rips a page and I instinctively go, oh, why did you do that? And, you know, and she gets tears in her eyes and I'm like... <laughs> Oh, you didn't mean to. I'm sorry. Please keep reading the book to your stuffed animal. Um, 
<laughs> but do you think you, you would have continued or at least continued uh, a little bit longer with the public schools? We might have continued longer. I mean, I suspect that if we were using the public schools in the U.S., my daughter wouldn't have had such a hard experience, and so it wouldn't have pushed us out of it. But I'm not sure... I mean, I really don't know, but I suspect that, I mean, in the first place, we probably never would have put her in school because the only reason we did put her in school was because of that language factor, so we probably never would have started, but it probably wouldn't have taken much for me to yank my kids out of school because I also was thinking a lot about this, and I've thought often about my own K-12 experience and about how I feel like the knowledge that I got from kindergarten through high school really could be crammed into about a year's worth of school. And I just don't feel like I got that much out of it. I'll give you an example. I took six years of math classes focused on algebra and geometry, that kind of math, stuff beyond basic division. And I hated it. I was terrible at algebra. I failed my classes. I didn't like studying. And it was the hardest thing for me. And I spent so much time at home struggling with math homework for all these years and years and years and just getting beat down and feeling like I was an idiot. I just figured I must be stupid because everybody else is getting this homework done and getting decent scores on tests and I'm failing everything. And at the end of high school, when I got a D plus in my Algebra 2 class, I thought, yes, I'm done. I passed. I didn't get an F. I can be done with math for the rest of my life because I was going to go be an artist. I was planning on going to art school, and I thought, why do I need math? Well, a couple of years passed, and I decided I didn't want to be an artist, and I wanted to go into business and become an entrepreneur. Well, to study business in school, you got to take all these math classes, and I realized I knew I'm really bad at math, and I need to figure this out and catch up. So I went to the college, and I said, hey, I need to catch up on math. How far back can I go? Because really, I need to go back to, like, seventh grade math and catch up from there. And so I did that. I took remedial math classes in college, and I took all six years. I took everything from pre-algebra all the way through to calculus in one semester I got straight A's on everything. It was a piece of cake, and it was fun, and I loved it. And I looked at them, and I thought, why was this so hard when I was younger, and it's so easy now? And part of that, I think, was just the way that I was learning. I was studying on my own. I was doing math workbooks on my own. It wasn't in a teaching environment that perhaps wasn't suited for me. Also, I think it was just partly a function of just being a little bit older. It was definitely related to now I had a purpose. I had a reason to do that math. But in the school system, there was no option. I couldn't opt out of math. I couldn't say I don't want to do this. I don't see any purpose in this. And nobody spent the time to try to convince me that it was worth doing. And then in college, once I had a reason for doing it, it was just a piece of cake. It was so easy. And so, But I looked at that and I thought, well, gee, if I can get through six years of math in about three months... What else could I have gotten through a lot faster if I had had a different way of studying, a different structure, a different process? What if I were homeschooled? What if I could have progressed at my own pace instead of having to go at the pace everybody else went, went at? What if my parents had come to me when I was in high school and said, hey, you want to get out of math classes? Finish all your math classes in three months and you never have to do math again and here's how to do that. Well, that was never presented as an option because I had to stick on that system that was set up for me. I didn't know anything about any other way to do it. But with homeschooling, you have that flexibility with your kids where you can say, hey, you want to study math today? Great, let's dive into math. You want to do dolphins? Let's do dolphins. You want to do art? Let's do art. And so we go with what our children are interested in because it's a lot easier to educate somebody when they're interested in what you're teaching them. So we let our children guide us and we focus on that rather than cramming all the other stuff down their throats and making them hate it. Your history with math is really interesting because when I went to, uh, when I enrolled in Running Start, which I did, so for my junior, what would have been my junior and senior year of high school, Tons and tons and tons of people who qualified for a running start still had to do the remedial math classes. Um, I think maybe, did I? 
I think I barely made it. I think I barely made it because my history is math, with math, even though I was homeschooled, is similar to yours, where I couldn't, I couldn't stand it. And I sometimes wish um, if somebody had exposed me to, what is that, sh- that show called from the early 2000s, Numbers, I think. If somebody had exposed me to something like that, that showed the power of math in, in practical ways, in interesting ways, I feel like I would have applied myself a bit more, but yeah, I wasn't a great, wasn't a great student in math. <laughs> uh, okay. So do you think, what about charter schools, right? Cause you know, we've talked about public schools and a lot of people say, you know, yes, it's kind of a factory setting, but this is what we have to work with. What about charter schools, which seem to have a bit more flexibility? Are those just efforts you know, to prop up a, a failing system because, you know, you focused on the idea of one teacher teaching 30 kids, um, and it seems to be similar in those environments. Is it all just endemic to this idea of putting kids in schools, or is there a way to do school that isn't homeschool in a way that sort of gets the benefits of homeschooling? So. Specifically talking about charter schools, I feel like it's an improvement. In some cases, it's a vast improvement, but it's still taking a flawed model and trying to make it better rather than starting from the ground up. Um, Having now gotten really into this and having done research on it, I've gone back. I've researched the history of education and how it came from Europe, and it was basically designed to train compliant factory workers. And you think about the school system, at least the school the way that I grew up in, you had about 50 minutes for a class and then a bell rings and you move and you go to a different room and you learn about something else and you're sitting in a well-ordered classroom with an authority figure at the front. Well, that's a lot like the factories of 150 years ago or 100 years ago. And that's what they're training people to do. But we're not training kids to work in factories anymore. We're training them to be thinkers and creative and knowledge workers and all these things. So why are we using the system from 100 or 200 years ago that was created for an entirely different purpose than liberal education? And so I look at charter schools and I think it's better And there are lots of interesting things that schools are doing these days that are improvements, but I feel like it's toying around with things at the margin. They're making a 1% improvement here, a 2% improvement here, when maybe the better approach is to scrap everything and say, look, if the goal is, and really, what is the goal? What are we trying to do with our kids? For me, my goal is I want my kids to learn how to love education, love teaching themselves, and I want them to learn how to educate themselves. Because if they love learning and they know how to learn, I'm done. Well, not done, but a lot of my responsibility as a parent is already fulfilled because they're self-sufficient. They can take care of themselves from that point on. That's what we as adults do. We teach ourselves. We learn on our own. We figure things out. And the so that's what I'm trying to teach my kids how to do because – I don't know what they're going to be doing 20 years from now. A lot of the jobs we have today didn't exist 20 years from now. A lot of the jobs 20 years from now don't exist today. So we can't train our kids for the job 20 years from now. They're going to have to learn that step by step. And the only way they learn that is if they know how to learn and they enjoy that process. Those are the kids who are going to have an advantage. The kids who are trained to do a specific type of work or a specific job, the kids who don't work well unless there's an authority figure at the front of the room telling them what to do, those kids are going to get stuck in those types of jobs where somebody has to tell them what to do. They're not going to be the leaders of tomorrow. So it's more about how to think and how to learn versus what to think and what to learn. So are you saying that more money can't fix public schooling or at least make it or at least seriously improve it because that is an argument that I hear a lot that if we put if we just invested more right in our in our children's future right because we're a community and we do this together if we invested more in our children's future then we would see improvement in the types of um, education that kids are receiving. Well, if money made that much of a difference, 
Look at a state like Utah. They spend, they're one of the lowest spending states per pupil, and it's something like $5,000 per year per pupil. Then you've got New Jersey and some other East Coast states where they're spending $20,000 per student. And you look at that and you say, well, are the kids on the East Coast or in New Jersey getting 400% better education than the kids in Utah? I think it'd be pretty tough to make that case or anything close to it. You could say, well, in New Jersey, real estate's more expensive. There are other reasons why it's more expensive that doesn't flow directly into the education. But still, four times as much money, are they really getting anything close to even double as good of an education? The other side of it is you look at how much spending has increased over the past 40, 50 years in education, and are kids better off? I mean, we've I don't know the stats on that off the top of my head, but it's crazy how much more we spend on education today than 30, 40 years ago. Are kids that much better off today? I mean, we have kids graduating high school who don't know how to read, who don't know basic math, who don't know, I mean, the basic, basic stuff. And then I go back and I read books about John Adams or something and his kids, and it's like these kids knew so much and were so well-educated and it seems like a lot of people back then actually were really well-educated. I know some people were also illiterate back then, and some people didn't have access to education. But a lot of people back then seemed to be ten times better educated than most of our kids today. And I think there's something more going on here than just money. There's something that goes beyond just spending money on more computers. And, I mean, half of public education spending, this is a well-known fact, that half of it goes to administration. It's not even going into the classroom. It's going towards administrators who get paid a lot and are there. And so I look at that, and as an entrepreneur, as a business guy, I look at this and I think, take the lowest spending per pupil in the country at around 5000 per student per year, you multiply that by a classroom, 30 times 5, we've got, okay, 150 grand. You give me 150 grand and 30 kids, and I could provide some amazing educational opportunities for those kids. I could create a business model around that that would be just off the charts amazing for those kids. And I don't think what most of our kids are getting is anything close to off the charts amazing. I think they're getting babysitting mostly with some education thrown in on top. What about the kids who aren't fortunate enough to have a parent that's available to homeschool them, or at least, you know, supervise their learning? What, I mean, what's the next best option? This is where I have a lot more empathy than I did a few years ago when I started homeschooling. As I've gotten more into it, I realized more and more there are some parents who just don't have the option to homeschool. If you're a single parent and you're working three jobs because you have to do that just to keep your family alive, yeah. When are you going to homeschool? It's just not an option for you. So I get that that babysitting service is a necessity for a lot of parents out there. And the other thing I have a lot of empathy for is just the fact that homeschooling is hard. When we started out, of course, we didn't know what we were getting into. We, were deci we decided to do it, but we knew there were going to be challenges. Well, now a few years further on, I'm looking at this and I'm like, this is a lot of work to homeschool your kids. And it's tough. And we were meeting with some friends the other day, and she said she was a homeschooling parent. She's got four kids. She has two special needs kids, and she said, I couldn't do it. My mental health was deteriorating, and I simply could not keep up with their needs. And so she put her two kids in a public school system and got them specialized help. And I look at that, and I'm like, no judgment here. Like, I mean, she was on the edge and she said, I'm going to lose it if I keep doing this. And then that's not going to be good for anybody. So I recognize there are all these tough situations out there where homeschooling really is hard to do. I kind of compare it to, I run marathons and I tell people, hey, anybody can do this. If I run a marathon, you can run a marathon. Well, that's not really true. There are people who have injuries. There are people who have physical limitations. They cannot go out and run a marathon. And it's the same with homeschooling. It's hard and for some people, their circumstances, they simply can't do it. However, there are millions of families out there who I think if they just knew a little bit more about homeschooling and realized that it's not as hard as they might think it is, they would jump in and they would do it and they would do a great job. What would you say to public school advocates who would argue that if we let some parents homeschool their kids, then that's not fair because everybody isn't starting out on a level playing field, um, a la 
privilege theory is this you know an unfair advantage in life like i've seen there was one professor a couple years ago who said reading to your children is is overprivileging your your children and you know public school is often seen as something that binds us together as a society it's a common reference point that people reach back to and you can see it all over popular culture that this is something you know this is a sort of experience that almost everybody has in common and that in itself is very valuable um so what would you say to you know the idea that if you're homeschooling then not only are you you know quote-unquote unfairly privileging your kid um, because somebody else doesn't have that opportunity but just the idea that you're sort of taking them out of the culture that is supposed to be they're supposed to sort of be melded into well on the privilege side of things I'm not trying to privilege. I'm not a competitive person. I'm not trying to make sure that my kids are ahead of anybody else. And they might get done with homeschooling, and in a lot of ways, they might actually be behind people in schools. I'm not trying to make my kids into geniuses or make them ultra-competitive compared to everybody else or something. So, But what I am trying to do is I'm trying to raise them and teach them in the way that I think is best for them. And if that creates an advantage... So be it. But I'm not going to say, hey, for the better, to make people feel good in society, I'm going to hold my kids back and not let them thrive and not let them progress as quickly as they can because somebody's feelings is going to get hurt, are going to get hurt or because somebody else thinks that that is bad for society. I mean, where would we be as a society if we tried to hold kids back and keep everybody equal so that people feel good about that. I mean, that would hold our entire society back. Our society is pushed forward by the people who race out in front and show us what's possible and show us what can be done and, and in a way, make everybody else feel bad. I mean, there's something to that. I like to surround myself with people who make me feel bad that way, who stretch me and make me say, you know what? I'm being lazy. I could do so much more with my life. I like to be around those people. Some people don't like to be around those people, but I think it's good for all of us in society to be around people who show us what's possible. I mean, this is this is kind of like training somebody for the Olympics and saying, well, we don't want to make people feel bad, so we're not going to really train our athletes as hard for the Olympics because that's not fair. That's a privilege against the other people who aren't as fast. It's funny you say that about surrounding your, yourself with people who make you feel bad in that way. Something that I've um, said before or I've told you know other bosses before is like the way I try to become excellent is by surrounding Myself with other people who pursue excellence. And I think there's a lot to be said for that versus, you know, being in an environment um, from kindergarten through 12th grade where teachers are constantly having to teach toward the lowest common denominator. That's a totally different way of approaching education. Now, this leads into the second part of your question, which is, okay, if I like, if I think it's good for society to pair up excellent people with not so excellent people and I'm removing my children who theoretically are the excellent people from the public school system, then that hurts the other kids who are left, right? And if all of society took the best kids out of public schools, then you only end up with the lowest common denominator there or the kids who are behind, right? So to me, that isn't an argument to make sure all kids go to school and stay in the school. It's, it's an argument against the school system, that there's something wrong with the system. There's something wrong with the way that we have education structured in this country, and we need to look at fixing that, even if it means radically disturbing the status quo and coming up with something that's very different from what we see today as traditional schooling. So what do you think are the biggest things that hold people back from deciding to homeschool? Is it just sort of a general lack of knowledge or is it a lack of resources and support or, I don't know, in some cases, um, regulation? What, what do you think are the biggest things holding people back? 
I don't think it's regulation. I mean, yeah, I don't like government regulation of homeschooling. We have to report to the school board here in Boston and such, and I don't like that. But I don't feel like that's the, a huge obstacle. I think the biggest obstacle is, number one, people just don't know about it. Maybe they've heard of homeschooling, but they don't really know what it is. They haven't really thought about it. They haven't really been exposed to what it is and the potential that it brings for their children. So I think that's number one. I think number two is even if they know a little bit about it, then they lack the confidence to think that they can do it because they think or they've been told that in order to educate a child, you have to be a professional. You have to be trained. You need to have at least a bachelor's or a master's or a PhD in order to educate a child. And my response to that is it takes something like, I did the math on this once before, it takes 18,000 hours or something to earn a PhD if you include bachelor's, master's, PhD program, all of that. Well, by the time your child's three years old, you've spent about 18,000 hours with your child. And so you have a PhD in taking care of your specific child. Nobody else is ever going to have that experience with your child. Nobody else knows what your child needs as much as you do. Nobody else can cater to your child's educational demands the way that you can. And so to me, that's a huge confidence booster to know, you know, no matter how well-trained some professional is, if they're in a classroom with 20, 30 kids, and they don't know my child, and they only have my child for eight or nine months, and then my child goes on to the next teacher, there is no way that they can educate that child as well as I can, even if I don't have all the training that they have. Were there, when you before you seriously started considering homeschooling, were there any myths and, and stereotypes about homeschoolers that you sort of had to dislodge before you can move forward? Um, because growing up, I received a, a lot of, um, oh, you, you are, do you get to do school in your pajamas? Is your, is your mom your teacher for every subject? Um, do you wear denim skirts and read Little House on the Prairie? Um, were, were there any sort of things like that where you sort of had to realize like, oh, maybe, you know, my idea of what homeschooling is like is, that's a little bit different in reality. Yeah. I mean, the stereotype of homeschooling is, I mean, you hear this all the time. People will say, oh, that family homeschools. You can tell just by looking at the kids. Like, I mean, you've heard this, right? Like, we hear this all the time. It's like, yeah, that family, their kids kind of look weird. They're kind of pale. I think they homeschool or something. <laughs> it's like, and then it's like, oh, yeah, they don't have a TV, and they don't eat sugar, and they're, they're going vegan. It's like all these things somehow get together, and, you know, but the biggest thing that comes out, of course, is, oh, their kids are kind of weird, and they just don't get along socially with other kids. They kind of stand out. I mean, that was probably the most negative stereotype that I came up against when we were starting to homeschool. Now, we were so convinced that we wanted to homeschool, we were just kind of like, whatever, and we just went ahead and did it. But since we've been doing it, we run into this all the time. I mean, we always get questions about, well, how are your kids socializing? How do they get along with others? Yeah, that's the big and, one. Yeah, that that is the biggest one that we've had to confront and answer that question over and over and over again. And at first, we were kind of apologetic, like, Oh, no, we're, we're doing stuff like we get them out and we go to classes and we get them out into these other things and they interact with other kids. Yeah, yeah, they do. And it was kind of like this apology thing, like trying to convince people that we're getting our kids out of the home and giving them exposure with other kids so that they can get that socialization. And then we realized, wait a second. What do you do in life? Do you go out in life and you spend most of your time? with kids who are ex or with other people who are exactly your same age sitting in a room looking at an authority figure like where does that exist in the real world there's no office there's no job there's no career i can think of where you're in that type of situation in and out every day however almost everybody ends up starting a family someday and they have a spouse and they have kids and they have to deal with those relationships with people who are from very different backgrounds, very different ages. And so now we look at this and we say, no, our kids are getting the most important socialization they can. They're learning how to deal with a family. They're learning how to raise a, a family that is healthy and gets along well together. And they're not getting all that antisocial stuff 
that kids get at school, like bullying and drugs and all that other negative stuff that we've all seen at school. That's nothing new. That's been going on for 50, 60, 70 years at schools. And so we feel like, no, our kids have an advantage when it comes to socialization by not being in the traditional school system. Yeah, I think that's a point that is uh, underutilized. And it's a point that I made a long time ago. I think I wrote an article about homeschooling, which, you know, if I could go back and do it again, I, I would have said things differently. Um, I don't think I ca- I don't think I came off as the as the charitable and understanding person that I should be. <clears throat> But that was a long time ago. Um, but yeah, the, that point about sort of lateral socialization and having 30 kids that are exactly the same age all being socialized together is a sort of weird concept. And that didn't even occur to me until like way after I was done homeschooling. And, I, and that, you know, you kind of get that 10,000 foot view where you look back and you're like, wait a second. That's kind of weird. But nobody else is nobody else is thinking about that because the vast majority of us. Um, have grown up in the public school system, and that just we sort of assume that that's just the way that things are done. So it's interesting that you bring that up. Yeah, and I see it in my kids. My kids are 9 and 11 right now. They're very comfortable speaking with adults and speaking like adults with other adults. They talk to adults, and they don't really see this distance between them and other adults. They just think, hey, here's another person. Yeah, they're older. So what? But when you're in school and you have that adult at the front of the classroom and everybody's your age, it really ingrains that distance that it says age is very, very important. But in the real world, it's not. Yeah. Even um, so I, I help out with the local youth group and the, the the dynamics between the sixth graders and the seventh graders and the eighth graders is just fascinating to me. Um because the way that they think of each other, it's like they're not that far apart in age, but the way that they think of each other, it's like they treat each other like they're different species. Uh, it's kind of funny, but also like a little bit concerning. I'm like, guys, you know, he's just, he's in sixth grade. Just give, you know, give the kid a break. <laughs> yeah. Whereas my kids, they get together and they play with kids from, of all different ages, kids that are a lot older, kids that are a lot younger, and they get along fantastic with these other kids, especially if the other kids are homeschooled. It's like, we'll have an 18-year-old playing with our 9-year-old, and they're talking to each other like they're just best buddies and like they're on an equal plane, and it's so fun to watch. Yeah, that warms my heart. Um, That is one of the benefits of having having, uh, lots of kids, though, and I think one of the reasons why homeschooling works so well in big families, so I'm one of five, is because you do sort of have that socialization and then you have kids who are older who are able to sort of help the kids who are younger um, in terms of education, not even in terms of like basic child care, like changing diapers and stuff like that. But now it kind of raises an interesting question because people are having fewer and fewer children here in the States and you would wonder how that would change things. You know, for instance, the proportion of kids who are only children, you know, like, uh, you know, single, the single child of a family is growing. You don't quite get the same dynamic, do you? No, and I think that is hard. I mean, we were living in China for two years, so we saw the one-child policy where nobody has two children. I mean, hardly anybody. It's every family has one kid. And... Yeah, like homeschooling with one kid and keeping them at home all day, that would be kind of weird. I think if you have just one or two children, it is it is really important to get those kids out and give them opportunities around other kids and get them to associate. The great thing in the U.S. is there are so many meetup groups and communities and co-ops where people get together. There's a co-op in our area here in Boston where people get together and the adults teach different classes to the kids. So it's yes, kind of like... Part of a co-op. Yeah, so we get together and the kids learn different things. And one day it's somebody teaching about art and one day it's somebody teaching about something else. And it's very ad hoc and loose and kind of chaotic, but also it's really interesting and it's based on things the kids want to learn about. So it's there are lots of opportunities to get out. It's not like you homeschool and you have to do it alone and you're all isolated. It, there's so many people that you can connect with. We found that hard in China. In China, it was really hard for us to connect with homeschoolers because the nearest homeschooling family was an hour away. And so that was tough. And that was hard for my wife. And she did feel isolated. But 
here in the U.S., it's just it's so easy to get out, and I take my kids out, and I'll, I'll meet up with other homeschooling dads, and we'll do something together with our kids, and we have a great time, and there are lots of opportunities to get out and do things like that. What is the most persuasive argument you'd give to somebody sitting across from you who very firmly believes that sending their kids to the local public school is is the best or the only option for them, even if even if theoretically, you know, they could put food on the table and, and provide adequately with with one parent homeschooling. I mean, what is, you know, what, if you had just, you know, one to two minutes to open the door to talk about homeschooling, what would you say? I don't think there's any one argument that <clears throat> that works for everybody because everybody has different reasons why they're sending their kids to traditional schools or why they're homeschooling. But the, the biggest question I would want parents to ask themselves is just what's best for your child? What is the best option for your child? Is it take an honest look at the way that public schools are set up and then take an honest look at what you as a parent can provide at home and ask yourself, What's my goal for my child, and are they more likely to reach that goal by going through the public school system, or are they more likely to reach that goal through homeschooling? And depending on what your goals, what your vision is for your child, then you'll reach an appropriate decision and do your research. I mean, don't write off homeschooling just because of what you've heard or because of something, an article you read, but really do the research into it. Find out what's possible so that you really can accurately judge homeschooling versus public schools and then ask that question, what is best for my child? What is the hardest thing about homeschooling in your experience? Oh, man, I'm sure you never did this to your parents, but it's when the kids don't want to learn, when they (laughs) rebel. It's, it's, uh, it's, It's tough. When you put time and effort into preparing something for your kids to learn, and then they sit there and they just say, I don't want to do this. I hate this. I hate you. I, I hate everything about this. I don't want to learn anything. And you're sitting there and you're like, okay, maybe I will send you to the public school. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the moment where you want to give up and you want to say, gee, this is really hard. And maybe there is something to that professional training that the teachers have. And maybe there is something to that idea of putting them in a box for six hours a day and letting them be there. I mean, they're... There are days when it's just hard to get through that emotionally, and it can really wear on you. And, I mean, that's why my dad quit teaching when he was a public school teacher. He taught for two years. He couldn't handle the kids and their attitudes and them not wanting to learn. He just was like, I'm out of here. I'm done with this. Uh, my mom was a lot more patient with kids. and But it's hard. If you're a parent, you've got a short fuse, and you're really into authority and respect, and then your kids don't, you're just going to be like, this is hard. I don't know if I can do this. So on the flip side, what, what is the best part? The best part is knowing that when our kids are 17, 17 or 18 years old, they're going to leave home. But knowing that until then, I'm spending so much more time with them than most kid, or most parents get to spend with their kids. I work at home from a home office. I work at home because I want to be around my kids as they're growing up. So I'm here for three meals a day. I get to do stuff with my kids during the day. I know that's so rare, and so many parents don't have the opportunity to do that. But I'm so grateful every day that I get to see what my kids are doing, and I get to interact with them throughout the day. And to me... That is such a huge payoff that I get to have that relationship with them. And it's not just about me. It's they get to have that relationship with me, too, because they're going to go through the rest of their lives saying, my dad is one of my best friends. My mom is one of my best friends. I spent so much time with my parents, and I love my parents, and I love my siblings. They're going to have this strong love of family. And to me, that is the payoff, despite all the difficulties. Yeah, that is one of the things I appreciate most uh, about my parents and about my mom, especially because she spent so much time with us and it was such a privilege and you don't fully realize that until you're older and maybe even becoming a parent yourself. But you know, I always say, sometimes my husband is like, you, you just read our toddler four books before bed. Like, you know, it's like a, you know, 35 minutes past your bedtime. And, uh, I'm just like, 
but we both agree, like nobody has ever told us you spend too much time reading to your kids. Yeah. I don't think anybody has ever said that. Yeah, and they and they grow up so fast. I mean, our 11-year-old, I feel like she was born yesterday, and then I'm thinking six, seven years, she's going to be gone. Like, that's it. We're done. Like, if we didn't get it right during those years, like, she's out of here, and we're going to miss her so much. But that's so much more reason to ha- have her around and to be homeschooling and to be with her because I want to enjoy that time. I want her to enjoy that time. Good things to think about. Joshua, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about this. I really appreciate your perspective. And I think this discussion offers a lot to think about for parents or prospective parents who are weighing the question of how they're going to educate their kids. Uh, Josh, where can we, Joshua, sorry, (laughs) where can we follow any content you put out, um, out into the ether about education or where would you sort of direct parents who might be interested in learning more about the pros and cons of homeschooling? So I don't focus on homeschooling in my professional life, but I do Mm -hmm. have a TEDx talk out there on homeschooling. So if you go on YouTube and you search for TEDx Stimely, then it'll pull up my TEDx talk. And also I did watch it. It's very good. Cool. And uh, that's where I've got all the stats and stuff that I can't remember off the top of my head. But also my personal website is joshsteimley.com, and you can contact me through that. And anybody, even though I'm not like the uber homeschool expert and stuff, my wife is, and I can connect you with her, and I can tell you what we've learned. I'm happy to talk with anybody about our experience and how we manage things and how we organize things. Very cool. You can catch links to the newest episodes and heads up on upcoming episodes at 180Cast on Twitter. Uh, If you know of a good 180 story, don't forget to let me know about it. For those of you who prefer to contact by email, you can communicate with me at the180cast at gmail.com. And if you like the podcast or you are especially interested in this episode, please share it with a friend or two, or better yet, share it with somebody who might be influence to change their mind on the subject. Thank you for listening and subscribing and following. I look forward to hearing your comments on this episode and come hang out with me on Twitter at Georgie underscore Borman, where we talk about this and many, many other things. And yeah, if you're a real if you are a regular listener to the podcast or you just discovered the 180 cast, I would love to hear why you choose to listen and how you found the 180 cast and i hope you stick around so stay tuned for a new episode every friday until next time seek the truth share your values and listen with your heart and your mind god bless General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.